In last week's text, verses 5 through 10, we noted that there was a foundation in verse 5 that God is light and in him there is no darkness. We noted that in verses 6 and 7 there is an application that we should not walk in darkness but we should walk in the light. And we noticed that in verses 8 through 10 there was a clarification Namely, that walking in the light does not mean sinlessness, but it means confessing our sins and receiving forgiveness. Two of those points are picked up in the next two verses, and I'm going to develop them and one other. I would summarize the three headings of this text like this. One, don't sin. Two, Don't despair if you do sin. And three, don't hog Jesus for yourself. Let's take those one at a time and unpack them for our faith and obedience. First, don't sin. Verse one, first half. My little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. Two points under this. We need a definition for sin, and we need to see the seriousness of sin that would motivate John to write a letter with the purpose of urging Christians not to sin. First, the definition. The clearest, most straightforward definition of sin in this book is chapter 3, verse 4. There, John says, everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's our definition. Or to unfold it, sin is our refusal to submit to God's law or God's word. Or my definition would be, sin is insubordination against God. When God's word says... What God has joined together, let not man put asunder and you plan to divorce, you sin. When God's word says, put away all deceit and you plan to mislead the IRS on your tax statement, you sin. When the word of God says, bring up your children in the instruction of the Lord and you make no effort to teach your children the word of God, you sin. Among civilized people, sin is kept discreet. It is usually encased in attractive containers of rationalizations. And it's not usually considered to be very serious, is it? Know anybody who weeps over sin these days? Their sin? Even though it stands to reason that nothing in the world is more wicked and more terrifying than insubordination against our Creator. Which leads us to consider the second point under this first heading, namely that sin is very serious. There are four reasons given in this book, at least, why sin is serious. And I want us to hear them 
and begin to feel it so that it has an effect to create vigilance in our lives against sin. First, sin is serious because it insults the sufferings of Christ. Over there in chapter 3 again, verse 5, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason Christ came into the world was to destroy sinning. Paul said in Ephesians 5, that he gave himself to purify for himself a bride. Or he says in Titus 2, he gave himself to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people, zealous for good works. Christ died to stop you from sinning. Therefore, when you sin... You scorn the sufferings of Christ. You say, in effect, well, you might have died and suffered to stop me from doing what I'm about to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Second, sin is serious because it suggests that we have the nature of Satan rather than God. Right there in that same context, chapter 3, verse 8, he who commits sin is of the devil. The other side, verse 9, no one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him. Now, you recall that we do not take these verses to imply a perfectionism that would contradict verse 8 and verse 10 of chapter 1 or verse 1 of chapter 2. Rather, I take them to refer to a life of sinning that is sinning, that is unhated, unassaulted, and too often unconquered. But the very least we can get from verse 8 and verse 9 of chapter 3 is that sin is serious because it's not the fruit of God's nature within us. It's the fruit of satanic nature. There are two songs in the world. There's the song of Satan and there's the song of Christ. Whenever you sin, your heart is attuned to the song of Satan and you play it his way. And whenever you, in faith, obey Christ, your heart is attuned to the song of Christ and you play it His way. And it is a serious thing to find your heart again and again whistling Satan's song. Third, sin is serious because it jeopardizes our assurance of salvation. Next week's text begins at verse 3 here in chapter 2. And it says, By this we may be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
Perhaps one of the reasons that sin is not taken very seriously in the church today, let alone in the world, is that this is not taught in the churches. Instead, we are taught that our assurance of salvation has nothing to do with our obedience to God. We are taught that saving faith is such a weak and powerless thing that it guarantees no changes in life. And therefore, to insist on looking for those changes as evidence of saving faith is considered to be wrong. If that is so, 1 John has got to come out of the Bible. Because no matter how hard they try, the easy gospelers cannot make it mean that. Look at chapter 3, verse 14, for an even more inescapable statement than next week's text. We know, that is, we have assurance that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love remains in death. You cannot have the assurance of salvation if you are not a loving person. Persistence in sin destroys the assurance of salvation. A whole branch of evangelical theology has been developed to provide assurance for disobedient professing Christians in our day. And this book of 1 John is written by the Holy Spirit to blow that theology out of the water. Sin is serious because it jeopardizes our assurance. More on that next week. Finally, sin is serious, fourth, because it can put you beyond the reach of hope. Turn to chapter 5, verse 16. I'm going to translate it literally so that you can catch the implications. If, if anyone sees his brother sinning sin committing sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask and God will give to him life, namely, to those who are sinning not unto death. There is sin that is unto death. Not concerning that, do I say, you should request. All right, unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, those verses are a summary of all the warnings of this letter. There are many. And those verses are intended to help us avoid two errors. The one error would be the claim that any sin you commit after conversion 
is your damnation. You're done for if you sin after conversion. And this verse avoids that error by saying at the beginning of verse 16 and at the end of verse 17, no, there is sin not unto death. And the other error that these verses keep us from falling into is the claim that any sinning you do after you make a profession of faith doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. And the verses keep us from making that error by saying, yes, there is sin unto death. Don't even pray for it. There is sin that puts us beyond hope. There is a habit of insubordination against God that becomes so strong that you can no longer confess it with authenticity. 1 John 1.9 says, confess your sins. And he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There is a sinning that puts you beyond the ability to do that. And oh, how we play with fire when we say, I can sin and I'm safe because I prayed once to receive Jesus. There comes a point when you may never be able to see or feel sin the way God does and hate it the way he does it and flee from it. And that's what confession means. So John, in the great love with which he loves his little children and this John, in the love with which he loves Bethlehem, says, I say these things to you that you might not sin because it's very serious it insults the suffering of Christ. It suggests we have the nature of Satan and not God. It jeopardizes our assurance of salvation. And it may put us beyond the reach of hope. And the second major heading of John's writing is to say, Don't despair when you sin. Second half of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Don't despair. There's hope. Now, the, the question that arises as you read that is, why did he write that? It's as if just after he had succeeded in all of a sudden making us serious about sin so that we have the wherewithal to flee it as we should, he says, there's an out. But instead of calling the wisdom of the apostle into question, maybe we should humble ourselves and learn from him what the church needs in order to stop sinning. There are soft and there are severe people in the church, aren't there? The soft people probably might say that they wish 
John had not written chapter 1, verse 7. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. Because they say, in making our cleansing dependent on our walk, he takes away the gospel and leads us to despair. And then there are the severe among us who might have preferred if he had not written chapter 2, verse 1. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Because, well, it softens and cheapens the gospel and turns it into license. Well, let us humble ourselves before the Word of God. And if we are soft... Let us learn appropriate toughness. And if we are severe, let us learn appropriate tenderness. I was talking to the staff as we prayed before we came out, and I said, oh, how my prayer is that God would make of Bethlehem a church that always keeps things together, that so many are always pulling apart. Jesus, tough and tender. And his beloved disciple who laid on his breast at the Last Supper, mingling in this book the same things. It is both and. It is not either or. If we sin, there is an advocate. Don't sin. Isn't that great? That's what the church needs. Not one or the other. Now the reason... The beautiful, magnificent gospel reason in this text why there is not, or there is a sin not unto death. That is, why there can be sin in Christians' lives and it not mean damnation. The reason that can be is because of two things in this text. He is an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is our propitiation. So let's ponder those two things briefly. What does it mean that Jesus is a propitiation for our sins? Now, your RSV, I know, says expiation, but the more literal rendering is this old-fashioned word propitiation. Propitiation means the removal of the wrath of God against sinners through the death of Jesus. The removal of the wrath of God against sinners through the death of Jesus. Behind it lies this assumption. The ultimate problem of all human beings is that God is wrathful against them. If, you, if, you, if somebody asks you, what's the ultimate problem that human beings face in the world? Don't say nuclear arms. Say the wrath of God against our sin. And then, if they ask you, what's the ultimate solution? What's the best news in all the world? Answer, propitiation. No, don't say that. Answer, Jesus died to remove the wrath of God against sinners. And he did it. He became a curse for us. He took it away. Now, that assumption, that background is in John. For example, in his gospel, chapter 3, verse 36, he says, 
He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God rests on him. Is that awful picture John has? The wrath of God rests like a weight on people who do not obey Jesus and will mean their destruction if they do not find a way out from under the weight of God's wrath. Who took the initiative to get God's wrath off of God's people? God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God himself is not content that God's wrath rest upon God's children, and he removes it by sending his Son. He sweeps it away. His love and his justice conspire to find a way to remove the wrath of God against sinners and preserve the holiness of God. He cannot sweep sin under the rug of the universe. He cannot say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just let you off. I'll take my wrath away from you. He can't do it. And so he finds a way. He sends his only son and pours his wrath on the son. And he absorbs it for us and removes it, propitiates it. Verse 7 of chapter 1, you'll remember, is John's way of referring to the death of Jesus in the word blood. He says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The way God removed the wrath of his own holy nature against our sin is by the blood of his son. Paul calls it propitiation in his blood. Romans 3.25. And there is no wonderful news in all the world, no more wonderful news in all the world than that Christ endured the wrath of God in our place. So propitiation means the removal of God's wrath against sinners through the death of Jesus. Now, what is the advocacy of Christ? It says in verse 1b, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And someone might ask, well, if the wrath of God was removed in the death of Jesus, why do we need an advocate? If all of our sins were covered and God's holy indignation was appeased and propitiated... Why do we have to have an, an attorney in the court of heaven? I think it's the wrong question. The question ought to be put like this. Since Christ died for our sins and propitiated, appeased, placated, removed the wrath of God, and was raised from the dead by the glory of God, and now stands at the Father's right hand, what's He doing? What's He for? What's His ministry toward us and the Father in this day? Right now as I preach, what is the Father and the Son doing in heaven? That's the way to ask the question. 
And if you combine verse 2 and verse 1 of this text, surely the answer becomes, he is an attorney and his portfolio is his propitiation. And every time you or I sin as believers, he doesn't propitiate the sin afresh. He doesn't die again and again and again. He takes his portfolio and he spreads it out on the bench before his father, the judge. And he shows him pictures of Gethsemane. Crown of thorns. Lashing. Mocking. Scourging. Crucifixion. Cry. It is finished. And then perhaps just holds up his hands. See, the work of Christ in his advocacy and his propitiation are really one work. Because what he, what he pleads, what he makes a case out of before the Father is his own death. He just lays himself and his crucified self before the Father. His portfolio as our advocate is his propitiation. And John means that we should therefore not despair. We dare not say we have no sin, but in order not to despair since we do have sin, we have to take thought that we have an advocate who is making his case before the Father right now, not on the basis of our perfection. Nor is he a deceiver. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is making his case on the basis of the historical work that he performed on Calvary. So John's aim is that we not sin this morning. And his strategy to free us from sin is that unique biblical combination of warning and consolation. Threat and promise. Caution and encouragement. Tough and tender, just like his master. And we need to hear about the ominous danger of sinning. And we need to hear about the unspeakable good news that Christ our advocate has removed the wrath of God from those who trust him. The warning guards us from presumption and instills within us vigilance. That's what's missing in so many Christians today. We act as if sin doesn't matter and therefore there's no vigilance and therefore we lay ourselves open to drifting away into the sin unto death and proving that we never did belong to the Lord. There should be vigilance in the life of every believer. Watch and pray that you not enter into temptation, said the Lord. And there's so little of it in the church. We're so cavalier about our sin because of this theology that has been developed to say we're safe and it doesn't matter what we do. And the other side, the wonderful consolation guards us from despair and instills within us the courage of hope. Because you can't make any progress in the Christian life if you're despairing either. If there's no hope, there will be no obedience. If you wake up in the morning and all is black, you can't do acts of love for others. There has to be a freedom and courage and hope in your life. And it is not for us only. And this is the last brief point. John says, 
He is not the propitiation for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. John does not mean that all of God's wrath against the sins of every person has been removed. He says very plainly, in fact, in John 3.36, those who do not obey Jesus, the wrath of God rests upon them. He has not propitiated the wrath of God against every person. It is resting squarely and heavily upon all unbelievers. The closest parallel to this text is in John 11.52, where Caiaphas prophesies, it says, that Jesus should die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but for all the children of God scattered abroad. It's as though, he said, back in chapter 10, verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have that are not of this fold. In other words, we for whom he has propitiated the wrath of God must remember that there are sheep scattered throughout this whole earth. As John says in Revelation 5, 9, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and by his blood didst ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. He did not ransom every tribe and tongue and nation. The Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many people in every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And we must not hog Jesus. The last word Jesus ever spoke was, go make disciples of people in every nation. So in summary, John's message to us today is, don't sin. It is tremendously serious. But if you do sin, don't despair. There is hope. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the Son of the Judge, the righteous, and he pleads his propitiation, not our perfection. Be courageous. Be of good courage. There is hope. Take your stand upon the solid rock of his propitiation.